0: Hello and welcome. Kevin here with another episode of Can't Make This Up, a history podcast where we talk to historians and journalists, and in today's case, a professor from the medical field, to talk about very unique and interesting history. As the world grapples with the coronavirus pandemic, the topic of infectious diseases has taken center stage in our public consciousness. While COVID-19 may be viral in nature, Many of the most dangerous diseases are caused by bacteria. Medicine has traditionally treated these infections with antibiotics, but increasingly our antibiotics are becoming less and less effective. My guest today is Dr. Muhammad Zaman, who joins me to discuss his new book, Biography of Resistance, The Epic Battle Between People and Pathogens. Dr. Zaman is a professor of biomedical engineering and international health at Boston University, and his research has led him to become a fellow with the American Institute of Biological and Medical Engineering. He has shared his expertise with newspapers across the globe with columns appearing in over 30 countries. Today, Dr. Zaman joins me via Zoom from his home in Massachusetts to discuss the evolutionary history of bacteria and the microscopic war that has occurred between them for millions of years, the first human efforts to understand these organisms and influence that battle, and how those efforts have led the world of medicine into an age of highly resistant superbugs. Now on to the show.
1: The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast.
0: Dr. Muhammad Zaman, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you for coming on. Uh, We are recording uh, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic and diseases on everybody's mind. Uh, So this is certainly a timely discussion for us to be having. Um, If you could start, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your career in this field. Yes, Um, so
1: my name is Muhammad Zaman. Um, I am a professor of uh, biomedical engineering and global public health at Boston University. Um, I grew up in Pakistan. Um, I came to the US about 25 years ago. And yeah, 25 years ago. Um, And uh, my research focuses on some questions in fundamental science in cancer research, but increasingly on what we would call global public health, um, that is, uh, challenges in accessing health care in parts of the world that are less affluent than uh, the place that you and I live in. Um, we are very interested in thinking about these questions in a holistic way, which means that we certainly use technology as a driver, but we're also interested in issues, social and political and socioeconomic issues that sort of affect health and can certainly improve uh, better health uh, care for everybody. Um, lately, we have had a lot of interest in uh, improving uh, access to healthcare among refugee populations all over the world. Um, my training is in fundamental sciences. My PhD is in chemistry um, <clears throat> from the University of Chicago. And then I did a postdoctoral work um, at um, MIT. Um, I briefly taught at the University of Texas and have been at Boston University for about 10 years. Um, in terms of our research interests, Kevin, uh, they are certainly. I would say um, interdisciplinary we are very interested in fundamental questions but certainly um, how um, diseases spread and how uh, challenges uh, accumulate in populations uh, when it comes to accessing healthcare so there's certainly an engineering and a science component but increasingly a policy and a social science component as well
0: and that's where the history aspect comes in uh, what I really enjoy about the line of research that you took was that it is interdisciplinary, and, and you looked into the past on how this issue that that is becoming increasingly on people's minds. Uh, where did it come from? Where did it or where are its origins? Um, and so I really like that you've fused history and, and medical science together.
1: Yes, um, so you know, it's it's funny that you asked that. Uh, I come from a family of historians. My father and my mother both. Uh, were historians um, and taught in Pakistan. My brother teaches at Princeton University. My sister is also a historian. So I guess um, at the back of my mind, or perhaps in my genes, is a deep appreciation of looking at um, the origin of things and how it evolves before it sort of really becomes an issue. Um, So that's one dimension. The other thing I think, increasingly, we have to realize that medical problems that we face, including the coronavirus problem, Um, really has to tell us a lot about a series of actions or missteps or lack of action that really gets us to a phase. Sometimes that period could be three months and sometimes that could be 100 years. But it's very important to recognize the context and the historical context in which these challenges emerge. And I think that's critical for our ability to address them in a way that is both comprehensive and equitable. So, So there's both, I think, a A personal journey here, but also one that
0: I think is increasingly lost in the domains of science and health. All right. So you you mentioned, you know, very briefly that the, you know, where we're at today, you know, these things don't occur in a vacuum and including what we're going through right now with coronavirus. And if we could just address for the audience, uh, for their benefit, what we're gonna talk about today is somewhat of a different issue than coronavirus and the issues we're we're living with currently. Um, Can you explain the difference between the subject of your book and what we're going through right now?
1: Yeah, so the the book that um, you're talking about, biography of resistance, deals with antimicrobial resistance, um, largely um, associated with um, the fact that antibiotics, one of the most potent arsenal um, of uh, drugs that we have, are becoming increasingly useless and impotent. Um, so, <clears throat> bacterial diseases, pneumonia, as uh, a classic example, um, um, typhoid, and others that we often hear about, are examples of that. Um, are manageable for great many people, but increasingly over the last uh, 50 or so years, we are seeing that more and more people are becoming resistant to these drugs. Um, And so that's the bulk of the the story that we talk about. But I want to make one connection here, and actually it's a connection um, that was first made by a person we hear and we sort of, uh, I think, uh, recognize these days increasingly, and his name is um, Dr. Anthony Fauci. In 2008, he published a rather provocative paper where he said that most of the people In the 1918 pandemic, the great influenza pandemic that killed about 50 million, perhaps more people, uh, actually died because of bacterial infection, not viral infections. What happened was, and and it's a beautiful paper um, published in 2008 that I would encourage others to study as well. What he says is that it was sort of a a dual assault, a, a viral assault that sort of really weakened the immune system, but the knockout punch came from bacterial pneumonia Remember, this is a time when we did not have any antibiotics. Mm-hmm. So it really became an issue where people were just unable to deal with this challenge. So, so while the focus of my book is uh, antibiotics and bacterial diseases, there is an intimate connection, again, going back to history, but also somebody who has become a prominent and highly respected voice, in certainly in the United States, but also abroad. I wanna make one more comment here, um, Kevin, and that is that we are very worried that as this pandemic continues to grow uh, there are parts of the world where hygiene and sanitation continue to be a problem there we might expect to see a a spike in bacterial infections uh, right uh, behind or perhaps in parallel with viral infections and there sort of this, this dual assault of viruses and bacteria may be may be very very difficult to handle so while i think our attention is on addressing this viral pandemic, as it should be. I think it is important to be cognizant of associated challenges that may be sort of lurking, not far behind.
0: Absolutely. So, if you could, in in, in a very basic level, um, you know, take some of us back to our uh, you know high school biology class. Uh, what what is a bacterium, and and what are the mechanics that it has for defense that, that makes this little microscopic organism so formidable?
1: So bacteria are are pretty old inhabitants of our world, about billions of years old. Certainly, a lot older than than um, the human evolution. And these tiny microscopic um, creatures are uh, unicellular, they're made up of a single cell. I don't like to call them primitive because they are very sophisticated in many ways. So I think that's a, that's a word I would avoid using, but, but oftentimes you hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, they do not have as organized structures as uh, mammalian cells do, or as more sort of, I would say higher level organisms do. Uh, they often have um, sort of a, a cell wall, sort of an outside defense mechanism but what makes them really formidable um, is the, the, their ability to evolve quickly and adapt to these outside assault of um, uh, these weapons released by other bacteria or by antibiotics to kill them. Now you have to remember one thing that sort of the this, this discovery of antibiotics about 90 years old or 91 years old. Uh, the bacteria have been creating antibiotics for, billions of years. And there's an arms race that is going on. So one bacteria tries to remember they're, they're coexisting in soil and in the environment and in water. And there's sort of this evolutionary battle of sort of really doing, getting one up on, on, on each other. So they would sort of come up with these molecules and, and they would sort of release them. And the other bacteria, um, which are under assault, would develop these mechanisms to resist that. In some cases, that is sort of, uh, increasing your guard, increasing your your ability to um, sort of uh, create a defense by changing your cell wall or or changing sort of a a structure of that so that things would just bounce off. In some cases, when the antibiotics are able to get in, then there are other mechanisms in place. For example, an alternative chain of command, so things that are used for important processes such as metabolism would go somewhere else as opposed to what would be um, the target. In some cases, this arsenal of antibiotics that would come inside a bacteria, the bacteria would add something onto it. Because remember that these antibiotics are very specific. They want to go in and target a specific part of the cell. And if you add a bunch of payload, they are then unable to find that specific spot, that specific nerve center that they want to attack. So there's a whole variety of things and and highly sophisticated that make these bacteria Um, Very formidable, but I think the the real reason this is concerning is that while the process of uh, resistance is um, is evolutionary and and has always happened, um, the interference from humans and and our hubris and our our actions are accelerating and sort of tipping the balance uh, from a natural equilibrium towards uh, pathogenic bacteria having an upper edge, which is where the problem really starts.
0: You you employ a, keeping with that history theme. You you employ a really good analogy early on in your book of of kind of a medieval castle. How you have that outer wall, and should that be breached, there are defenses in place to protect the inner keep.
1: Absolutely, and and and, and you know what is what is remarkable about these bacteria is that that there are several layers of these uh, defenses. So there is an outer wall that probably is is an easiest uh, way to imagine as something that you would have in a medieval castle or a medieval city where you would sort of just uh, make a taller wall and a thicker wall or one that would sort of bounce, I mean, where, where uh, this, this outside assault would bounce off. But as we have come up with more and more, uh, I would say, sneaky ways of entering uh, the, the inside of the bacteria, and other bacteria have done the same as well. I think bacteria have also continued to evolve in mechanisms that can uh, dismantle this uh, arsenal even once it gets inside this this castle of sorts.
0: Well, then you know human beings en- enter the picture, um, which is you know what most of, of the story in your book is about. Um, what can you tell us about the first scientists and their efforts to first discover bacteria and then research how they work?
1: Yeah, so you know the the interesting thing, um, Kevin, here is that the the science of bacteriology actually. Is, is has has two very interesting dimensions one is this fundamental curiosity with seeing nature and and this takes us back hundreds of years to um the time when people like robert Hooke and antoine von uh, Leeuwenhoek are really coming up with these beautiful pictures based on uh, based on amazing microscopy Leeuwenhoek in particular is is a is a remarkable character a dutch cloth merchant who sort of um, becomes a pioneer in creating these beautiful lenses that give an unprecedented look into these tiny little creatures, um, which first of all, nobody believed, certainly not the, not the British at the time. They were thinking that, I mean, how could this be that this guy who has absolutely no training in, in sciences or natural history, for that matter, at that time could argue or could sort of say that I'm seeing these things that nobody has ever seen before. It, now, it sounds very fanciful. It does. It does. And they had to send a, a team of church elders, literally speaking, um, to check up on that, uh, on, on the claims of this crazy guy. And they came back and said, well, yeah, he's right. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the amazing discovery of, of that. Um, he doesn't certainly call them bacteria. the bacteria. The real change happens um, about, I would say, 150 years ago, where this idea of germ theory comes along, and, and there are two uh, competing claims of that. Uh, one is Robert Koch, the other one is Louis Pasteur. Um, uh, and, and, and remember, this is a time of uh, um, Franco-Prussian relations being at their lowest point. There's a lot of nationalism, and they certainly cannot stand each other. Mm-hmm. And, and they sort of argue that, look, Diseases are not because of bad air or these sort of superstitious ideas. Uh, They actually have an origin. They have an origin that is so fundamental that if two people were to be exposed to this this particular germ, they would get the same disease. And you would be able to extract out this germ from the uh, patients and their infection and culture it and put another third person and the third person will get the same thing. So they come up with these, so uh, Robert Koch comes up with these, um, these postulates that really sort of revolutionize um, our understanding of what exactly is going on. And so that really changes it. Uh, and this is uh, towards the, the second half of um, the 19th century. Robert Koch certainly had <clears throat> interest in, in anthrax and TB and, and, and Louis Pasteur is a, is a great scientist, a brilliant mind, but also a showman. Uh, and, and a very successful one. And I, I think many of my French friends um, would agree to it grudgingly, that he's remarkable, he's absolutely brilliant. But he's also, a, as has the sort of great sense of theater and, and sort of drama. And the, these two individuals, um, who uh, I would argue are just absolutely brilliant, but also have very human flaws. Um, my My point in the book is not to say that they are somehow not good people, I certainly haven't met them, but but we also have to recognize that they're also human and their, their fallacies and failings are important to recognize. Anyway, so so these people really sort of push the, the, the science forward through their their large enterprises of research. So these are the, the great labs and great institutes that these two individuals are running in parallel and making sort of remarkable discoveries, one after the other. And that really sort of changes the, the way we understand of modern microbiology and sort of really ushers in a new area towards the beginning of the 20th century where this is the hottest thing. This is the coolest science that you could be doing, is the science of germs and how people get infected and, and, and what to do about it. And this is all before a sort of the, the origin of modern antibiotics.
0: Yeah, um, Louis Pasteur. Af- after reading um, that section in your book, you, you develop more of an appreciation for him, kind of in the same way of when you are, you know, going through elementary and in high school, and, and you learn about Thomas Edison, and he's this very sanitized figure. Um, but when you dive in a little more deeply, there, there's a lot more going on there, um, and you know, the same I th- it seems to be true of Louis Pasteur.
1: Absolutely. So Louis Pasteur is is absolutely brilliant. Um, he um, sort of gets his big claim to fame um, through, uh, sort of comes from the tanning business, but it's sort of the, the, the problems in the French wine industry that are really uh, troubling the, the government at the time. And Pasteur sort of uh, talks about fermentation in ways that are just absolutely original. But as I said earlier, he's also a showman. And, and at times, I think that sense of showmanship really gets the better of him. So so there are a couple of instances where, um, by modern standards, and even by standards of that time, we would consider those to be unethical. So one of them is the case where he sort of makes these big claims about the, the vaccines that he is sort of developing, and, and those vaccines are, he's saying, uh, developed by this new method of oxygen, when actually he has not used the method that he's claiming. He has used a well-defined method um, that is already in existence. He takes claim that the method is, the new method is his. He never actually even uses it and never gives credit to the people who actually came up with it, that's one. This big uh, sort of uh, show about coming up with this rabies vaccine is even more, I think, uh, important to recognize that by that time, he actually did not have any new method for developing vaccine. As a matter of fact, he said that he had tested uh, that vaccine that he's talking about. uh, And he said that he had tested on on, on a bunch of dogs. The reality is that he hadn't tested on anyone. It would certainly be an absolute no-go today. Even at that time, that would be considered unethical of sort of giving something completely untried to um, a person. And if you look at statistics, um, Kevin, that boy had a one in 10 chance of getting rabies. So there's a big sort of um, a celebration of the fact that Pasteur cures the kid from rabies. There is no sign that the kid would have gotten rabies. Nine out of ten chances that he actually wouldn't have gotten rabies. But that's sort of besides the point. But, mm. but Pasteur really claims success and does so in really absolutely in a, in a, in a brilliant way. Um, so so um, I would say failings of personality, absolutely. Does it take anything away from his sort of... Uh, an absolutely brilliant mind and, and, and careful experimentalist, Absolutely not. So the point is to, to put people on an appropriate human pedestal and not sort of uh, create these hypersanitized versions of these people, which really takes away from their humanity. So that's the point. I mean, I think Pastor is, is as brilliant as they come.
0: He's a but, real person.
1: But he's a real person, exactly.
0: I hope you are enjoying my interview with Dr. Mohamed Zaman. I wanted to take a little break from our conversation to tell you about a really cool at-home delivery coffee service that can bring coffee right to your door when you might be hesitant to go out or might not even be able to go out. Phil and Sebastian Coffee Roasters employs a team of coffee experts who work in 100% direct trade coffee. Their expertise has been featured in the New York Times, Lonely Planet's Global Coffee Guide and the CBC News Network. They have a subscription service that ships free to anywhere in the USA or Canada, and they allow you to build your own coffee profile. You can decide whether you like brighter, lighter, fruity coffees or darker, sweeter, bolder coffees, or you can leave it up to them and just go with Roaster's Choice. But you can get excellent coffee shop quality coffee delivered to your home on a monthly basis if you'd like to check out phil and sebastian coffee roasters check out the link i've provided for you in the description of this episode in your podcast app once you get your phil and sebastian coffee in the mail you might want to add a little irish cream and sit down and listen to this fellow podcast from the straight up strange podcast network folklore on the rocks
1: there i'm logan and i'm Lindsay, and we host the new podcast folklore on the rocks where we talk about folklore and lesser known creatures cryptids and monsters from around the world
0: so when we say lesser known we mainly mean that we won't be covering creatures like bigfoot or nessie or chupacabra just because they're discussed so often and the world just has so many other awesome options to draw from
1: every two weeks we will be diving deep into the legends and culture that surround a specific creature and getting a little bit tipsy while we do so. But don't worry, we do our research sober.
0: (laughs) On the weeks in between, we're going to be narrating and discussing folktales. Some will be historical folklore from the regions that our creatures are from, and some will be modern folklore, such as no sleeps and creepypastas.
1: You can find out more about us on our website, folkloreontherocks.com, on Facebook and Instagram at folkloreontherocks, on on Twitter at folklorerocks! So grab a drink, join us, and come on, let's dig deep together.
0: Now let's dive back into our discussion on Biography of Resistance by Dr. Mohamed Zaman. He's a real person. But
1: but he's a real person, exactly.
0: So somewhat similarly, um, uh, Alexander Fleming... um, you know, we most of us have heard the tale of how he discovers penicillin, um, but similarly, there, there's more to the story than than that tale.
1: Absolutely, um, even even that tale itself actually is a little um, thought provoking. So the tale goes that Fleming um, is doing some experiments, is about to go on a vacation. Uh, leaves the window open, comes back and sees sort of the bacteria all dead because of the mold in an open window. First of all, that to a modern scientist should be quite concerning. That's actually quite sloppy to leave the window open and not check before you go. So so let's get that straight. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't give a good message. That serendipity <laughs> is actually a little problematic even, even at the very basic level. But if you look at the, the architecture of the room that he is in, it's very, very hard to leave that window open. Uh, and the, uh, the reality is that most likely that mold, so the, the mold is actually real. Uh, the mold uh, is probably coming from uh, sort of the open doors in the, the hospital building uh, that he is, he is uh, looking at. I think there are other inconsistency in his stories as well. So his story about discovery of penicillin is, Remarkably similar to his discovery of lysozyme, another antibacterial enzyme that, that didn't make sort of the big news, penicillin did. Um, but it's it's again very very um, similar. But this whole sort of um, uh, issue of this this open window in the and the serendipity is, if you ask sort of rigorous historians, they would have their very very serious doubts. Um, just because the, the place that the window is placed is, is very, very inconvenient. Um, and, and Fleming would really have to jump across benches in his lab, a person of very modest height, uh, to open a window into a street that actually was incredibly noisy at that time. <laughs> so, so things are not adding up. Why he did that is, I think, the great mystery uh, historians of science continue to argue with. The, the point I'm making is that the story itself... May be a little embellished, but the fact is that that he did discover. So I think the, the emphasis should be on the discovery, and the serendipitous story is, I think, a little um, uh, has, has may not be may not be accurate. And I think I believe that.
0: But regardless, we the, the science develops its first you know real kind of usable uh, antibiotic treatment. Um, and you know this is this is getting us into the early part of the 20th century, um, and and you write that that bacteria don't care about human affairs, but but human affairs do have a, an effect on bacteria. So how do politics and and especially warfare uh, affect the history of bacteria? That's a
1: great question, Kevin. I think a core part of the book actually talks about that various different wars. Um, one of the sort of the uh, big uh, elements in discovery of war uh, in discovery of antibiotics is the Second World War. So uh, there's a ch- uh, team at the Oxford um, Dunn School, a uh, uh, school of Pathology in, in Oxford that is working on, on improving the, the quality of penicillin for the Great War effort for the United Kingdom. Um they're doing okay, not a lot of interest from pharmaceuticals. But uh Howard Flory, who's sort of a main character in the book, uh through his connections comes to the US and starts working with colleagues in, in uh in labs here, along with one of his underappreciated colleagues, Norman Heatley, who's just a brilliant, brilliant scientist. Um and it's largely through that war effort that the quality of penicillin improves remarkably. And and with that, it becomes massively available to great quantities um, and and really helps the um, allied powers really um, check infection and treat people. At the same time, the overuse is happening at the same time so that the letters from um, Colonel Elliot Cutler, who is deployed in the European theater, clearly show that existing drugs, these sulfur drugs, Actually, don't work anymore. And they are given largely as a placebo because people believe that they work. So you already start to see this factor and, and this complicated legacy of war that this war effort is really pushing penicillin on the market and, and, and playing a central role in helping the allied powers um, succeed and protect their soldiers. At the same time, the overuse is starting to. Do harm and really undermine the very benefit of these drugs, and this happens throughout. so World War II is one example. Um, the the long drawn out Vietnam conflict is another, where again these drugs are being used um, and abused uh, in in um, in excessive con- uh, quantities in the U.S. troops who are uh, sort of based in the Pacific all the way to uh, the development of antibiotic resistant organisms in the second Gulf War. And I think this uh, the story continues. Just last year, there was a story about sort of these superbugs, which are now endemic to the former battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan. The troops may have moved out of that uh, region, but people are still there and they're facing that. So, so it's a very complicated legacy. In one way, somebody might argue that the resources that are mobilized during war often would push uh the scientific enterprise forward but at the same time the problems that we end up creating and this is one example of that are going to sort of last decades if not centuries
0: in in the latter half of the 20th century and then you know as recently as as you know, the, the Iraq war, we, we've got this arms race going on between evolving bacteria and, and microbiologists. Um, what, why is that so problematic? Why, why can't we just simply create a better antibiotic?
1: So that's a great question, Kevin. So there's several reasons. One, I think uh, we have sort of uh, the low-lying fruit uh, of finding things in the soil um, has I think we've we've exhausted, I wouldn't say exhausted, but we certainly have uh, the low-lying food we have sort of picked. I think we need more, and the cost uh, of doing research has gone up. But there are other factors as well. One of them, which I think is underappreciated, is the economics of the whole thing. So think of it this way. If you are a CEO of a large pharmaceutical company, and you have two options. You have an option to invest in an antibiotic, Uh, which people will take five or 10 days and there is a very real risk that it will become resistant or you invest in cancer drugs or drugs for uh, neurological disorders, which people will take every day. The chances of resistance are few and the economic returns are at least a thousand to 10,000 times better. Well, it's very obvious what direction most uh, pharmaceutical companies will go into. Increasingly, we see pharma companies sort of getting out of this business of antibiotics because it's just not economically viable. So that's one reason. The second reason is also economic, but important to think about. If you were to spend all this energy and, and really say, okay, I'm going to do this for public good, and, 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 and certainly this is important, and here is my new blockbuster antibiotic, and the government will say, well, Kevin, great job we want to use this antibiotic, but only sparing, only in exceptional cases. We don't want you to sort of sell it openly or to be able to sort of use it regularly because it's very special and we want to sort of reserve it. So again, there is that huge, huge disincentive. At the same time, we are seeing decreasing number of people going in infectious diseases. I think it's going to change post-coronavirus, but if you were to talk to uh, sort of colleagues in the um, clinical uh, side of research, they'll say that infectious diseases are not what most new physicians want to work on. They would want to work on cancer, perhaps surgery, um, sort of mental health or other things. Infectious diseases pretty, pretty low on their 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 uh, priority list. So there are these factors happening at the same time, and then on top of this, there's this challenge from the part of the world that I grew up in. Antibiotics are not regulated at all. I could go into a pharmacy today in Pakistan and perhaps dozens, maybe tens of countries and get any antibiotic I want over the counter. So all of these things are happening simultaneously. There are economic disincentives. The fact is that uh, our best and and most brilliant minds are not prioritizing this. Pharmaceutical industries have uh, economic reasons Resistance is developing fast because of behavior. And then agriculture here in the United States, in China, in India, large producing countries has used antibiotics excessively, despite strong evidence that this is a terrible, terrible thing to do. All of these things make the sort of a perfect storm times 100 or whatever to to create these superbugs. And research just has not been able to keep up because it's not a problem of research alone. It's a problem of of human behavior. It's a problem of priorities. It's a problem of investment. It's a problem of regulation, and that's what I, I I want to tell through these stories that these are all interlinked things, and science alone is not going to get us out of this. I think I think an understanding of human behavior and profits and hubris is is, is far more important uh, in um, recognizing the challenge that we're
0: Now, a lot of this is the bacteria responding to human behavior it, what's the timetable on this is this something that is uh, you introduce a new antibiotic and you have to worry about a strain becoming resistant 20 30 years down the road how how quickly are bacteria adapting that's a great question and i think that's
1: where science comes in as handy the answer is it's all of the above it's as bacteria developing resistance very quickly, um, much shorter time period, and certainly bacteria develop, will develop resistance in 20, 30 years. The, the the fundamental point here, Kevin, that we have to understand is that resistance is a natural phenomenon. Over long periods of time, bacteria will develop some kind of resistance. We just have to sort of be... Um, 10 steps ahead of that process and, and use our better judgment because we know uh, from history um, and history of science that um, and, and, and sort of just evolutionary biology that bacteria will always develop resistance and they have been developing resistance well before 1928 and fleming's uh, sort of uh, big discovery so so the question here is that how do you create a a, a runway so that you are always ahead of that I think it's very reasonable to assume that even the most potent antibiotic, if it were to come on the market today, will eventually have some level of resistance. So that's why what you end up doing is you end up using it with another, with another um, antibiotic. So to create sort of a, a one, two punch of sorts, uh, you try to sort of use it sparingly. So you decrease the possibility. You certainly don't want to use it in animals uh, for their growth and uh, as a sort of, uh, their, their, um, to, to fatten them up, so to speak. You certainly don't want to use them as a spray on oranges and citrus fruits in Florida. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a combination of that. How fast does it develop? I think it depends greatly on the bacteria, on the mechanism. But I think knowing this apocalyptic um, sort of scenario that eventually anything that we come up with, is likely to be uh, sort of uh, bounced off of bacteria or thrown out of the bacterial cell because of resistance, I think it's quite reasonable to assume that.
0: Um, Kind of the uh, nerd analogy going through my mind at the moment is um, if you watch Star Trek, the uh, character, the race of the Borg who are constantly adapting to whatever you do to them.
1: I think that's actually quite apt. Um, (laughs) um, I, I would agree with that. Um, And, and, you know, this is, this is that equilibrium that we have to think about. Um, And one of the things that I think is important, and this was the big issue in the, in the sixties and seventies where bacteria were the enemy, all bacteria were just bad. And, and, and you would sort of uh, want to kill all of them. Now we have realized that actually that's quite problematic and and very misleading. What we want to do is we want to have a nuanced um, approach. Bacteria living in our guts are actually absolutely essential—not just to, uh, for digestion, but also for immune response and 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 sort of our our growth and um, sort of fighting off disease. Um, you would go to the grocery store uh, and find probiotic bacteria, not antibiotic, but probiotic things in there to promote good bacteria. Right. So, so we have to be more nuanced and 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 think about it. So, I think the the. The arms race of uh, of sorts here has to be more subtle and more uh, nuanced, as opposed to sort of um, trying to wipe out all bacteria from the planet. That just would
0: be an absolutely disastrous thing. There's a temptation to want to think about this as you know a problem of overprescription, and that would be a more of a Western healthcare problem. Um, but you write that this is actually a, a, a global issue. How how is that? So. I
1: think you have to uh, understand that there are certain things that are common. Um, overprescription may exist in different forms. So, overprescription may exist in the form that your primary care physician is under pressure to give you antibiotics and is worried that if, if he or she didn't give you an antibiotic when you felt that you needed one, you may end up going to a different primary care physician. And that's, that is a phenomenon that you see here in, in, uh, in the US and in many other developed nations. A similar kind of phenomena exists in developing countries where people want to take it quickly. Now they just have more and easier access to it. So that's one dimension. But there are other challenges as well. I think the, um, the effect of um, antibiotics in the, in the food cycle is certainly that something that we have to think about. Also, we have to be cognizant that antibiotics are going to be present in the environment. So even when, when people take it, a part of it is excreted from the system. And if you have poor hygiene and uh, poor sanitation, those antibiotics, either in complete form or in a partially broken down form, would end up in water streams and um, sort of would stay in the system for a very long period of time. And every time you have floods or some other natural disaster, they would sort of really become part of the mainstream waterways. Um, So you really have to think about that. There's, however... I think a danger in thinking that this is a problem just over here or just over there. So the book starts with the story of an individual uh, who was in her seventies. This is a few years ago. Now uh, comes back from an international travel with um, sort of a, an infection that she developed after getting surgery abroad pretty soon. She has uh, an antibiotic resistant infection. She's based in, in, in Washoe County in Nevada. And the doctors use every single antibiotic that is available, every single class of antibiotics that is available in the United States, a total of 24, and they couldn't save her. And we have to recognize that even if the problem may be um, in our minds way out over there, the fact is that we live in an increasingly global world, and I think the the coronavirus pandemic proves that even more so. so we have to think about that. So, so everybody has to be uh, in agreement with a strategy. You cannot have some countries have sort of very clear, well-defined policies and other countries just being absolutely lax about it. And in terms of getting grades, U.S. is not doing very, very well when it comes to agriculture. Certainly better than other places when it comes to hospital infections and, and management of that but I think there's a lot more we can do. But the fact is that our people travel abroad, they they engage with other communities, tourism and and work and business and education and all of those kinds of things. And that really sort of creates uh, um, a necessity to understand this as a problem that is a truly uh, universally global problem and one in which all of us are affected simultaneously.
0: Um, So the last thing um, I I wanted to ask you uh, today, Dr. Zaman, is, you know, where does this global problem leave us today? Um, You know, you mentioned that um, this type of thing is not necessarily the hottest topic in in medical research today. Um, How seriously is the medical community taking this? How serious is the public taking this?
1: That's a great question, Kevin. I think the medical community is increasingly taking it seriously. I think people are worried because I think medical community wants their patients to survive and thrive. They want to see their patients do well. Uh, They are vested in the health and well-being of uh, their patients. Public, I would say less so. Uh, And I think part of the reason writing the book is some of our own research in this area and developing a deeper appreciation of where the problem comes from. but also um a public awareness of sorts that allows us to really think that we are really not very far from falling off this cliff where routine surgeries and c sections for delivery and and basic hospital procedures could be really uh, could could become very complicated and and that would be a just awful awful world to be in where we would live in a pre antibiotic era uh, or an era where people would die of normal infections, and I think it is very real. Um, there are all sorts of estimates: some saying tens of millions in, in uh, by 2050, some saying a little bit more, a little bit less. But the exact number of people dying is not the point here. The point is that we will end up in a situation where our healthcare would become so much more complicated that. It will affect people in a terrible way, and as always, those who are on the lower end of socioeconomic spectrum, people who already have uh, sort of have been marginalised, will be hit the hardest. And our tremendous gains over the last century in increasing the longevity of life and the quality of life and our ability to ward off infection, will sort of really, really sort of undermine those. So, so. Um, I think if anything, uh, and when I was writing this, I, of course, as you would imagine, had no idea about the uh, coronavirus pandemic. But I hope that this gives us an opportunity to really deeply reflect on our public health challenges and and increase both uh, intellectual investment and real financial investment in improving our ability to live a healthier and a happier life for everyone, regardless of where they live and how much they earn, what they look like or, or any other discriminatory factors that we may have in our society so so that's not my hope uh, and I think I think it is well within grasp so so I end up uh, right, when I finished the book i uh, felt that there is hope and there is a sense of optimism, but that optimism is predicated on our ability to understand and recognize the challenge and status quo and sort of continuing on the same path that we have continued on for the last 30, 40 years, I think is, um, is going to be quite problematic.
0: Very good. I'm, I'm glad that we can end on, on a little bit of, of optimism and, and reason to hope. But, um, you know, this is a, a dire issue that you raise in the book, but, but I'm glad there is reason to hope that we can uh, um, engage and overcome it in the future. I, I hope so, too. I hope so, too. So uh, this has been a, um, an incredibly fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, again, your, your book is Biography of Resistance, The Epic Battle Between People and Pathogens. If someone wanted to learn more about this, and there is a lot more detail in the book that we weren't able to cover in our, in our time together, uh, where can they go to pick up a copy of the book or learn more about you and your research? Great. So, uh, so um, certainly my um,
1: university website. If you just go to BU.edu, that is bostonuniversity.edu slash zaman. That is Z A M A N. That's my last name. Has information about sort of it's it's more technical and more sort of academic research. But um, the book is available in in uh, all um, of your uh, sort of typical book uh, buying resources, as well as public libraries. is also available <clears throat> in in um, the electronic format on Kindle and other um, reading devices. Uh, a number of public libraries would have it as well. Um, and I hope, and, and I, I really hope this, Kevin, that um, people will, will will engage with me and, and write to me and talk to me about this, uh, not as um, readers of the book, but thinking about this issue. I hope that the book is a conversation starter, not uh, just another story as we sort of battle Uh, this increasingly complicated and complex challenge in public health.
0: All right, well, Dr. Zaman, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today.
1: Thank you so much, Kevin. It was wonderful talking to you.
0: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Zaman about his book, Biography of Resistance. Uh, As I usually do, I am going to uh, recommend if you like this book, you pick up a copy, and I have provided a link for you. Uh, It's in the description of the episode in your podcast app. Um, This is a good opportunity to mention what that link is, I think. Um, I uh, recently have started linking to a website called IndieBound, IndieBound Books, and that is a, a connection where you can find where a given book is uh, in your area so you go to the book page and then you type in your zip code and it shows you where your local independent bookseller is. Um, I feel that's important to clarify because uh, right now with so many businesses shut down it is um, definitely important that you support your local independent bookseller Uh, they need your business more than ever. So if this topic did interest you and you want to learn more uh, check out getting a copy of Biography of Resistance from Indie Bound. And of course, the usual stuff. What did you think of this episode? If you would be so kind, subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, please leave a review. Those things are incredibly helpful. Uh, and then if you want to connect with me on social media, I am on Twitter and Instagram, both at CMTU history. Uh, I would love to hear from you. And then of course... If you want to check out the show notes to any of our episodes, those are available at www.cmtuhistory.com. All right, that's it from me. Uh, I look forward to talking to you all again very soon. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.